was quite miserable working in that, <laughs> that scene in Washington, D.C. And my husband said, you know, what could you do if you could do anything? And I thought back from when I was a little girl and I always wanted to be a writer. I'd wanted to write a novel. Becoming a writer is something that it, it just doesn't seem like it could ever happen or you could ever make a living at becoming a writer. And you have a lot of rejections along the way. People say, you know, that's not a good idea. No one cares about Russia anymore, <laughs> which is uh, advice an agent told me early on in my writing process, not my agent, another one. <laughs> I personally, as someone in my early 20s entering the field, experienced a lot of the things I think that I wrote about arena experiencing. There were times where I was brought into meetings just because they needed another woman in the room to impress a female candidate. Hi, and thanks for joining us on another Best Sellers. I'm Natalie Jameson. And I'm Phil Williams. And we'll tell you what we've got for you in just a second. But before we do, some bits of housekeeping. First of all... Housekeeping? Yeah. Is that still yeah. a thing? Is that still a word? Are we still keeping I house? I do, yeah. Yeah, very, yeah, <laughs> very <now>? much. <laughs> yeah. Um, in, not in a sinister way that you seem to be implying. But just in a, you know, <laughs> list on fridge kind of way. You know, that kind of thing. Just everything ordered and in its place. Yeah. 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 While I try. Yeah, no, I like a list. You know. Yeah, the trouble is, I can't pull the wool over your eyes because you know just how disordered my life is at the moment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's try and impose some order on the podcast. So, first of all, the uh, listeners in remote parts of the world, we're now doing very well in lots of parts of the world in single figures, if that makes sense. So, we've got a lot of solo listeners in places of the world. Yeah, I'll, I'll take any figure. Okay. So today's shout out goes to Venezuela. We have one listener in Venezuela. If that is you, thank you so much. Spread the word to your fellow Venezuelans and let's see if we can get that into double figures by the next episode. Did you notice I didn't even ask to go there this time? I know that you say that it's single figures, but I still find that really exciting, don't you? That like there are people... Yeah. My husband always takes the mick out of me because even when I chat on the radio, I'm always surprised that people have heard it. If they have, do you know what I mean? It's like it's still I a revelation exactly for me. Mean, yeah. yeah, I know, I know. It's, it's weird, isn't it? It's weird when you say to people, "Oh, oh, you heard that," and they went, "Well, yeah." Do you know, do you know the worst one yeah. I had? Although he was very yeah. sweet about it, was you know I'm an Aston Villa supporter, and mm. um, I'd really coated off the team on air one morning, like really hammered them because they'd played abysmally. Yeah. And then the following week, I was at the O2 to watch Paul McCartney. Clang. And I went for a bit of food before the gig. You know, one of the restaurants yes. that are inside the O2. And um, I'm sat there, and I'm, I'm very well refreshed, shall we say, Nat. <laughs> and and I see Martin O'Neill, who was then managing the team I support, Aston Villa. Okay. Thanks so for I'm, clarifying, because... Oof. All right, okay. <laughs> so I didn't know. It's a fine line, isn't it, between patronising and clarifying. So it's fine. Um, I... I thought I went over, and I never normally do this, but of course I was a couple of bottles of red to the good, so I went over and said hello, introduced myself, and talked about the game that was coming up at, at the Etihad and all the rest of it. And then um, he said to me, so what show did you say you did again? 
and I said, weekend breakfast. And he said, that's right. He said, you were very disillusioned after the Wigan game, weren't you? And I thought, oh, my God, he's heard it. He's heard me cut them off. <laughs> and you must have seen the colour drain from my face. And he put his hand on my arm and he went, don't worry, so was I. And I thought that was so generous of him. It was, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that was so, when I learned people listen. Yeah, they do. So it's great. I'm I'm really happy that people are enjoying hearing us talk to uh, authors and discuss books because it's bringing me lots of enjoyment. I haven't, we need to do some family stuff. I haven't given my brother any love for a while on this podcast and he's composed the original theme that you hear at the beginning mm. and then throughout the pardon. So a uh, big shout out to Dave Williams for doing the theme for me. And if you would like him to compose some music for you and your podcast or whatever it is that you're looking for, he's available for work and you can reach him via us at bestsellerspodcast at gmail.com, bestsellerspodcast at gmail.com. So that's my brother. What about your family? Well, uh, my mum is our number one fan. Um, probably more of me than you, if I'm honest. But no, she probably would hate me saying that. I think she just really enjoys hearing us chatter. Uh, but she really enjoyed... What's your mum's name? Uh, my mum's name is Pamela. Pamela, don't worry. I, I won't tell her that I'm your favourite. <laughs> uh, that's a lie. Um, she uh, sent me a really amusing message this week because she obviously listens to all of these. And last week's one with Sir Richard Enriquez, she was a bit reticent about only because, as we said on the podcast as well, some of the cases that he had presided in um, were quite distressing. And, you know, sometimes you're just not in the mood to go there. Um, and so she was like, I'm going to go to bed and I'm going to put your podcast on. And but, you know, I'll, I'll let you know in the morning. And then she sent this lovely message that was like oh I wasn't really sure what to think but you know what it was spellbinding and I really enjoyed it and it was fascinating and I wouldn't have expected that so um it's not often I get to surprise my mum anymore I don't think so that made me smile oh and that's nice as well because um I know you had some probably the same concerns because the cases that Sir Richard either prosecuted or tried were obviously quite horrific yeah. So the fact that she's been able to overcome that and still enjoyed that episode is testament to him, I think, for the way that he handled how he described them. So, um, oh, that's good. Cool. Pamela, I'm thrilled. I'm really thrilled. (laughs) We'll stick that on the posters when we get them done. (laughs) Spellbinding. Pamela Jameson. (laughs) I like it. Uh, Well, on to today's episode, then. Enough clowning around from Nat and me. And we'll get to Lara Prescott. And here's Phil Williams to explain more. It's a hot, sultry day at the beginning of June and three grown adults are locked in confined spaces so that we can bring you this episode of Best Sellers. And I'm delighted to say that our guest today is the author of a debut novel which reimagines what it was like for the person who wrote Dr Zhivago to get that story out there to the world and how the CIA used that as a propaganda tool. And it's a fantastic work of fiction. It's a fantastic debut, and it's sold for a lot of money at auction. And uh, it's called The Secrets We Kept, and the author is Lara Prescott, who joins us all the way from Texas. All my exes live in Texas, which is why I <laughs> hang my hat in Tennessee. <laughs> and uh, a welcome to bestsellers, first of all, Lara. And you're in, um, you're in your bespoke writing shed. Can you describe it for people? I am. I'm here in Austin, Texas, It's pretty hot here today. I'm in my little writing shed in my backyard, which is painted a really nice shade of blue, has an air conditioner for those really, really hot Texas days. 
I have a little reading uh, chair and my little secretary desk uh, that I write from. <laughs> and it most importantly, it's in my backyard, which is away from my house and my three-month-old, which is a big distraction for my writing of my next novel. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, we're all children wranglers on this podcast, aren't we? So we're all used to hiding away from our various kids. Although uh, Natalie's son has already featured in bestsellers, hasn't he? He has, yeah. He has a habit of wandering in sometimes and the amount of times, again, it's like, these are strange times. I kind of, they sort of get some of the rules about when, you know, parents are working, but who can shout too much if they come into the room, right? So if there are any interruptions, it's all okay with us. <laughs> yeah, just do your best. Laura, I want to start on how you managed to get the secrets we kept written and how you managed to get it out there. Because I know that with all books, there were loads of bumps in the road, there was one person in particular, I understand, who said to you, this won't sell. So we need to discuss that with you and how you stuck to your guns in the face of such adversity. Yeah, so I will go back a little bit further. I used to work in Washington, D.C. as a political campaign consultant. And at the time, I was working for uh, candidates all over the world. And I was quite miserable working in that, <laughs> that scene in Washington, D.C., and my husband said, you know, what could you do if you could do anything? And I thought back from when I was a little girl and I always wanted to be a writer. I'd wanted to write a novel. And he said, well, let's do it. Quit your job and do it. And I quit, but I went freelance for quite some time. And I was writing, you know, in the mornings or late at nights while I was still working for a number of years. But then I had an opportunity to have a fellowship here in Austin, Texas at the University of Texas at the Missioner Center for Writers. And it was then that I got to start working on this book full time. And I had learned about the CIA's mission to smuggle Dr. Zhivago back behind the Iron Curtain in 2015. I'm sorry, 2014, which is when I started my research for this project. And yeah, there's been a lot of bumps in the road. I think becoming a writer is something that it just doesn't seem like it could ever happen or you could ever make a living at becoming a writer. And you have a lot of rejections along the way. People say, you know, that's not a good idea. No one cares about Russia anymore, <laughs> which is uh, advice an agent told me early on in my writing process, not my agent, another one. Um, and also, you know, you submit your stories and articles to magazines and you just get used to um, hearing people say no. So when I went out with my book for sale, I really had the lowest of expectations and telling my family and friends not to talk to me about it for months because I knew I'd be getting all these rejections. But, um, you know, quite soon after I resubmitted it, I had a number of editors reach out that they were interested and it kind of just, you know, developed from there. And it was a really um, thrilling and almost bizarre experience for me who wasn't sure anyone was going to read this. Natalie, is this ringing any bells with you? Supportive <laughs> husband, quit your job. You should explain to Lara your situation. Yeah, so I, I'm i still working pretty much full-time but in a freelance capacity, so I feel like I'm sort of partway along your journey, hopefully, in that um, I was working for a company full-time. I left that uh, a couple of years ago now to go freelance in exactly that way to try and finish my debut novel that I've been working on. Um, but I've picked up a ton of freelance work too. So I'm still now almost working full time. <laughs> I am various companies doing a lot of freelancing and still kind of squeezing the writing into evenings and weekends. Um, I'm not very good on the early morning side of things. Um, 
I'm much better on the writing late at night side of things. But uh, yeah, it's kind of, it's quite reassuring because I often beat myself up with, I should, why am I still not doing this? Um, I have finished my first one. I'm on my second one now. I've got a literary agent, but I'm basically stalling on doing edits I need to do on my first one before it gets submitted to publishers. Um, and it's just uh, the time juggle is back. So I probably need to take a leaf out of your book and be a bit bolder in slashing some of that freelance work um, with very supportive husband and budgets and all the rest of it and and just cracking on with it but that can't have been an easy decision for you to have taken a real leap into that void yeah absolutely I feel you so much we have such similar trajectories it's <laughs> for for one I was um I guess what we call the breadwinner in the family working in and politics and I was making quite a good living my husband works in charity work and so when I decided to go freelance, it was a, you know, a, a big concern. We were living in a very expensive city, Washington, D.C., and we moved outside of the city. And then we moved to New Orleans for a while, um, living and writing there because it was the, the cost of living was so much better. Um, but I did. I was freelance. And then all of a sudden I had more work than when I was working at the consultant agency. And I did have to kind of pare that back and slowly diminish our funds <laughs> um, until, you know, we were just really scraping by for a long time. And I do think I would still probably be writing this novel right now if it hadn't been for the fellowship opportunity, which not only gave me three years of nonstop time to work on my novel, but it exposed me to a number of mentors who helped me along the way, such as Ben Fountain and Elizabeth McCracken. Um, just a, I love Elizabeth McCracken's writing oh, as well. She's, she's absolutely, she was one of my first readers for this novel and gave me so much advice about um, characters and world development. And uh, she's just been such a major uh, mentor figure for me. And so before that, I didn't have any writer friends. I was working in you know, Washington, where I was writing stump speeches and and political advertisements, but it was a t totally different world to get into this literary world where this was really my first exposure to, you know, being with other writers. So what made you choose this particular story as a debut then? Because it's really hard to pick something that we all know a little bit about, whether it's the theme music to the film or, oh, yeah, we saw that film at Christmas, we know Dr Zhivago, oh, yeah, I've heard of Dr Zhivago. And people have some information, and how much... Did you spend going back to piece together the real story and how much has come from your mind? Yeah, so I've always had this love of Dr. Zhivago. Of course, my name is Lara. It's named after Dr. Zhivago's heroine. That was going to be my question. Was <laughs> it you were specifically named after her? Yeah, so my mother takes uh, credit for the initial inspiration behind this book because <laughs> I was named Lara. And, you know, I grew up watching the David Lean film, which is just a classic. And yes, it's always played at Christmas, uh, I think, because of the snow. But it's not really a Christmas music, but it is played at Christmas. Um, and finally, I read Zhivago when I was a teenager, and it became one of those touchstone books for me that I would read every few years and, and just take so many different things away from it. And I, like, for instance, when I was a teenager, I was really into the love story. I wanted to get to Yuri and Lara's tragic love story and find out what was going to happen. Um, but when I was working in politics, I was really interested in this being a banned book and why what made this so subversive to the Soviet state and how words have this ability to really change people's hearts and minds that it became a dangerous thing. 
Um, but it wasn't until 2014 when my father emailed me a link to the Washington Post article by Peter Finn and Petra Cuve, and they had petitioned the CIA to release the documents detailing their Zhivago mission, which they called AE Dinosaur. And so when I read that, I immediately went to CIA's website, and you can read all of these redacted documents. There's 99 of them. And I was just reading them, and I was printing them out. And the initial inspiration behind fictionalizing this story was that so many of the names and details had been redacted from history, probably forever, um, of the names of the CIA officers involved. And I started wondering who they were, what their lives were like, which led me into my first research hole of, of learning about the early days of the CIA and, and onward. Um, but it was really about a year of solid research before I even put pen to paper um, when I got to Austin, Texas for my fellowship. And it was a consistent uh, research process. I think I've read about 100 different books, articles, magazines um, from the time period uh, to, to really to get this this story down. But it is, it is a work of fiction, and it's taking historical fact mostly um, of what the mission entailed, where the book traveled from, from Moscow into East Germany to West Germany, West Berlin, and then over to Italy and how the United States obtained it. Um, but the lives of Sally and Irina and some of my characters on the West, those are works of fiction. And works of uh, characters that I imagined um, had lived this life. Whereas on the Eastern side, we have Olga and Boris and real, hi uh, real life people from history who I did immense research into trying to find out what their lives were like and using direct quotes from them when possible and, and direct details from their own accounts. And my, the funnest part about historical fiction is imagining, you know, what else was said? What else did Olga and Boris tell each other behind closed doors? And that's when I really thrived in, in writing um, that part of my story. This seems like the perfect time to ask you to read us a little bit yes. from The Secrets We Kept. Um, which bit have you chosen? Is it near the beginning? Do, do we need to know anything else or are we kind of all set up? I will read from the beginning so I can just tell you that... This is the first voice that came to me while writing anything. Um, it's the voice of a group of women who are CIA typists. And this is just the prologue. So all you need to know is it's the CIA typists and it's around the late 1950s. The typists. We typed a hundred words per minute and never missed a syllable. Our identical desks were each equipped with a mint shell Royal Quiet Deluxe typewriter a black Western electric rotary phone, and a stack of yellow steno pads. Our fingers flew across the keys. Our clacking was constant. We paused only to answer the phone or to take a drag of a cigarette. Some of us managed to master both without missing a beat. The men would arrive around 10. One by one, they'd pull us into their offices. We sit in small chairs pushed into the corners while they'd sit behind their large mahogany desks or pace the carpet while speaking to the ceiling. We'd listen, we'd record. We were their audience of one for their memos, reports, write-ups, lunch orders. Sometimes they'd forget we were there and we'd learned much more. Who was trying to box out whom? Who was making a power play? Who was having an affair? Who was in and who was out? 
Sometimes they would refer to us not by name, but by hair color or body type. Blondie, red, tits. We had our secret names for them too. Grabber, coffee breath, teeth. They would call us girls, but we were not. It's a great setup. I love it. <laughs> it absolutely dragged me in when I was reading it because what I do I've said this to Phil before is um if I'm choosing when I'm choosing a book that I want to read I'll kind of read the blurb on the back but then I'll always read the first couple of paragraphs to see if I like the style and if I think I'm gonna enjoy reading it and and I really relished how you set up and established this group of women that are instrumental to the story but again sometimes I think it's kind of ironic what you were saying just before the reading that actually in a story about east and west most of the fact that we know about comes from the East here. And actually a lot of the fiction had to come from the West because it seems that the West has been way more secretive about this. Absolutely. I think that um, the names of CIA officers is something that goes to the grave with most of them and their deeds. And so even though we have this absolutely almost stranger than fiction tale unfolding through CIA memos and reports, um, you will not know who the people, the officers were involved. The only people you do know are Alan Dulles's name signed at the bottom or Frank Wisner's name signed at the bottom of these documents and some of the major players, but not the actual boots on the ground. And I think the women were so interesting to me because I kept thinking, well, who were the people typing these documents and memos, which led me down a path of discovering who the typing pool was of the, the CIA and what these women were like and and what early women spies were like during this time as well. I think that's the bit that I was fascinated by as well, because you were saying with all those names being redacted, there's no way of telling if they were male or female CIA operatives. But you obviously made a very conscious decision to make female CIA operatives at the heart of this story as well. Why was that? Yes. Yeah, so when I was doing some research into the roles of women in the early days of the CIA, most of them, as, as I write, were restricted to the typing pool or personnel or the record keeping department. But women also serve these roles of being carriers or messengers because like the role of arena in my book and they were given packages and envelopes and documents that they were to courier across washington dc or elsewhere and drop off at different points all over the city and the reason they used women often were because no one would suspect this young woman you know in the back of the bus had a secret or a package it, they were often overlooked. And so that's why a lot of women were utilized for specifically a lot of the internal document fairing that went on in Washington from, you know, CIA headquarters to the White House or elsewhere. And then I have the character of Sally, who was inspired by some of these old OSS, um, the, the first um, intelligence agency of the United States during World War II. And these women who were on the ground during World War II doing absolutely heroic deeds and after um, the war had ended, they were often just put behind a desk and or not utilized at all. And Sally really embodies that character. And so while there, there are men involved, I, I really wanted to focus on these two types of roles that would have been played oftentimes by women um, with these types of missions. And even if it's not, you know, the kind of role where they would have a gun or something like very dramatic, um, which is not really a CIA thing. It's more of a Hollywood thing. 
um, these roles, I think, are just as interesting and important in how they trained and, and what lives they would have to lead um, to do these types of missions. The inherent misogyny that's in that world, it was in that reading that you, you brought out a few moments ago. Was that something that you witnessed personally in the political field, you know, more recently? Is it still there? Have we got any better at kind of an equal playing field for men and women in these jobs? I definitely think it's improved, but it still exists, absolutely. You're working in an environment with a lot of big personalities and big egos. And I think that there's a, there's a role for women to play now that we can advance to the to the the top levels of this game but at the same time I personally as someone in my early 20s entering the field experience a lot of the things I think that I wrote about arena experiencing where I oftentimes didn't speak up until years had passed and I really learned to you know hone my voice and and speak out there were times where I was brought into meetings just because they needed another women woman in the room to impress a female candidate and, and these are just little things that were going on that sometimes I think were for optics sake, less than a woman really taking a role at these meetings or in these positions. Um, so, and of course there's, you know, um, I, I dealt with, you know, some, some little bit of harassment and things like that as a young woman. And I never really spoke up to it or never really thought much about it until I was older and, and thought, wow, I should have said something or I shouldn't have just laughed about it. it. It really bothered me and it still bothers me. So while we do have, you know, the head of CIA as a woman, <laughs> um, at the time there really wasn't any positions other than at the lowest levels that women could occupy, which has definitely changed now. Because there's been comparisons made with some of those scenes in your book and Mad Men. And I wondered how you felt about that, because on one hand, I think, well, Mad Men's hugely successful if people are saying it's like that, but then can it be a cross to bear? How do you feel about it? So it is interesting, that the comparison for Mad Men. I think when I was doing a lot of my initial research into the early days of the CIA, I would read about these crazy parties on the Potomac River in yachts, which I fictionalize in my book, and how they would have business over martinis and, you know, JFK, a young senator, JFK would be on the boat with a bevy of beautiful women. And, and this was a real world of these Ivy League men who all knew each other, most of the time from the war. They started this organization together and they would do business at parties and they would do business after hours over drinks. And I thought that was such a fascinating world to explore and it had almost that madman type of vibe. In addition to reading things like the Petticoat Panel, which was a report that Alan Dulles commissioned in 1953 about how women were treated in, in the CIA. And so you see the juxtaposition of these, these parties where women were often you know, excluded, the wives could go into the side of the room while the men do business. And it does have a, a Mad Men vibe. And, and I do. I think Mad Men's one of the, the best uh, television shows in, in modern television. So I, I don't, uh, I, don't I, I like the, the comparison. I don't have any qualms about that. And I think that it's a brilliant show. Um, and in fact, here in Texas, we have an archive of all the Mad Men scripts and some of the costumes here at the Ransom Center, which I got to take a look at recently, which was really exciting. But 
So I like it, but at the same time, I think it's much more than the Mad Men world. It's it's this world that's very different than what an ad guy in New York City would be experiencing. The stakes are much higher. I think it's kind of interesting because anything that obviously anybody ever reads, you read it with your own background and cultural context coming into play with how you interpret things. So I'm sure actually, even though both Phil and I really enjoyed The Secrets We Kept, I think we both probably pulled out different things about it that we enjoyed. Um, and I mean, I, I liked some of the the sort of almost, I don't want to say throwaway lines because I know that they're never thrown away in a book, um, but because so much emphasis is often put on the the women's appearance and what they're having to wear and how they're having to behave in front of the men. And there's a conversation, I think, early on where uh, there's, a, there's a comment about trying to get a waist or somebody's waist being likened to that as thin as Vera Ellen's in White Christmas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> which may, which resonates with me as somebody who's watched White Christmas many times and also thought, wow, that is a, a small waste. So I like that there must be some things that you've brought from your own background that you've sort of uh, sprinkled, if you like, throughout the text as well. Oh, absolutely. And it is interesting because I really did focus on appearance and fashion as almost a way of expression for women during the time. But I really only talk about that in the Western side. I, I never really mention what Olga is wearing or, you know, it's just not um, that form of expression is is really just put on the West. And I think that's also interesting to note, too. You know, you're living in these two very different worlds where Sally is gaining power from what her dress might look like or thinking about it more than someone like Olga who is dealing with a whole other sort of series of problems and ways to find her own power. Um, but I had a lot of fun researching what clothing they might have liked or what who <laughs> they would have compared themselves to. And I think, you know, Sally says she's she's gained more popularity with, you know, Marilyn, the rise of Marilyn Monroe and things like that and the, the changing of women's appearances. But also kind of delving into that and it is part of their expression but it's also part of their disguise yeah one of the things i drew out from it because you're right natalie that we had different things that we drew out of it one of the things i liked was um the little nods to the historical line that you've put in so one of the women goes to the cinema to see bridge on the river Kwai, which was also a david lean film and i i guess that's not a coincidence that you put that in (laughs) there's a lot of little i guess easter eggs like that throughout the book and i like when people find them um that's definitely one of them and i also had nods to james michener in the book because that's where i was doing my fellowship at the michener center (laughs) so he's my benefactor (laughs) and little yeah i think when people do mention those that they caught that I I absolutely love it and or someone's like is the Julia you're talking about um in the first uh part of the book is that Julia Child I was like yes it was Julia Child she was a spy isn't that fascinating so there's a lot of little (laughs) easter eggs from my own life but also from you know the the pop culture history of the time um I also think obviously this book is so much about relationships in a variety of forms, whether it's in the workplace or between men, between women. Um, there's a couple of things on this. First of all, I wanted to ask about, I hopefully most people have read the book if they're listening to this, because I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but obviously Irina and Sally, their relationship, which I just adored. I, I lapped up their relationship and, and if anything, probably wanted more of it, which is a good thing to leave a reader wanting more. Why was it important for you to have... 
uh, an LGBTQ relationship woven into this story as well? So it was one of those things that I didn't start out thinking that's where it was going to go. I always wanted to write another a love story um, as part of my novel to reflect the tragic love story of Dr. Zhivago itself. And I think one would think that that love story would occur on the East with Boris and Olga. But for me, um, it really was drawn when I started writing the characters of Sally and Arena. And I thought, what would happen if they would have this relationship? They have this chemistry. What if I kept going down that route? And I soon discovered a little known bit of American history called the Lavender Scare, which was going on during this time. And everyone knows about the Red Scare and the hunt of the U.S. government to rid itself of communists. But at the same time, they were looking for anyone that they suspected of being gay or lesbian or even friends with someone who was gay or lesbian. And they would fire them um, from the government positions without any repercussions um, or any, and you know, they could just fire people. They would out their names in newspapers. Many people suffered from this. Thousands of people were, you know, outed from their jobs and publicly outed. And it was absolutely horrific that we have this almost hypocritical government who is trying to show the Soviets how they aren't really free. And you can only really be free here in America within a democracy, but at the same time, they're persecuting their own citizens. And so that to me was, it was an organic development between these two women, but I wanted to show what the repercussions for that secret relationship would be, not only for themselves, but you know, how does it show a bit of history that the U.S. really hasn't um, paid much attention to? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, anything about history is fascinating because it depends who's telling the story, I know. Um, the other bit that I was fascinated by was the choices of where your sympathies lay as a writer and also as a reader as well, because whilst there was so much about Olga's story that was just heartbreaking and I know based in fact about everything that happened to her and the sacrifices that she made because of her relationship with Boris. I was also wanting to find out a bit more about Boris's wife mm -hmm. because I was finding it hard to be that empathetic all the time to Boris, knowing that actually he was being completely cowardly about not leaving his wife. And, and you know, of course the wife would be miserable. He wouldn't be if he was, you know, living in full view, this massive public affair with, with somebody else that he's credited with being his muse. It was annoying. Yeah, and I think, to be honest, I think it's one of my biggest regrets with this novel. And if I were to, you know, go back in time, I would have had a perspective <laughs> from Zaneda because I am interested in know what she was dealing with at the same time maintaining this household that allowed him to write in peace and quiet and cleanliness like he he desired and what she may have suffered um as as a result and she's a fascinating figure as well she you know they had an affair um she she was married to one of his best yeah. friends uh, and and they you know she was the young beautiful woman and and what happens when that woman ages and he finds someone new and what and you know we're still refusing to leave him and stand by him at all costs it's it's just I do feel like it's a part of the the novel that is missing but um I think that my interests at the time were solely um moving towards Olga and what she experienced and I think it is hard I never really thought of of writing from Boris's perspective to a great extent 
Um, one, because I, I think it was just my interest. It wasn't uh, a political statement or anything. I just kept finding myself being pulled more into viewing Boris from kind of a bird's eye view and, and what he was experiencing. We should just explain, if you haven't come to the book yet, Boris Pasternak is the author, he's the writer, he's the guy that wrote Dr Zhivago and Olga, as Natalie just mentioned there, is the muse and, you know, but he's married and, but the muse went through quite a lot of suffering as well, didn't she? Lost a child while she was in turn. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Olga Ivanskaya was the real life um, muse behind Lara. And maybe that is also part of my interest. I wanted to know who inspired this character. And she met him and she was working at a literary magazine in Moscow. And they pretty soon after developed a very intense relationship, romantic relationship. And Boris at the time, he's one of the most famous living poets at the time in Soviet Russia and across the world. And he had a bit of protection on him. One, because it was said that Stalin was actually a fan of his. And so when they found out, the Soviet authorities found out he was writing this novel and that it may contain some subversive content, he, they still wanted to pressure him to stop writing it. And instead of um, throwing him in the gulag, they pressured the person closest to him at the time was Olga. And so they brought her in for interrogation, but she at, at Lubyanka, and she refused to give him up. During that time, she lost, she miscarried their child. And she was taken to the gulag and served three years of her five-year sentence only getting out because Stalin passes away and at the time they release many political prisoners. Um, and she gets out and she goes right back to Boris and they continue their relationship. Um, but she suffers greatly. She, she's protected from a lot of things because of her relationship in terms of she is given, um, you know, she's able to support her two children due to her association with him and she's given a little bit of protection but at the time she's the one that suffers the most because they don't end up throwing Boris in jail. Isn't that just typical? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it is it is told so well and I'm, I'm I know this is what me and Phil spoke about once we'd both kind of finished the book is it makes you want to go and do your own research and, and, you know, look at all the references yes, that you've got in your acknowledgements and, and find out more for yourself, which I think is a, a great thing for a, for a, a book to inspire other people to go and educate themselves more about what really happened. Yeah. And Olga actually published her own memoir about her time with Boris Pasternak. And it was one of my primary resources and she details all of these things, what it was like to be in the gulag, what it was like to be taken to Lubyanka, these conversations with Boris about trying to convince him not to commit suicide um, or trying to convince him to write these letters to the government uh, disavowing his work. And this is all in a book called A Captive of Time, which she published um, you know, in the 70s. And so it's actually not really in print right now, but you can get it on uh, I got it on eBay myself, but it was the second book I got while doing my research. The first was The Zhivago Affair by Peter Finn and Petra Cuvé, but Olga's own story is told in her own words in this uh, amazing memoir. Lara, let me take you back to um, the moment it sells. And, and I think Natalie's <laughs> similar to me on this. We were both raised in this country that it's vulgar to talk about money, right? But th this, <laughs> this went, I understand, for two million 
dollars, which is a huge amount of money. Having been told by one agent no one was interested in Russia and that it wouldn't go anywhere, can you remember that day when you got the phone call to say this is sold in 30-odd territories for $2 million and how you felt? I think... I was in shock for months and months. It, it, I never in my wildest dreams imagined that it would sell for any amount of money. <laughs> and I, my agent didn't, did not prepare me for this. He asked me what would be a good amount. And I think I said, well, if I had $30,000, I could you know, live on it for a few years and write another book. And he said, okay. And that's all he said. And <laughs> the way it worked was I get a call from my agent that there was a preempt from a different publisher I didn't go with. And when they told me the amount of money, I was I was just absolutely, I, I felt like sick. I almost felt sick to my stomach because I couldn't believe it. And my agent was telling me to turn it down because he thinks they that it will go to auction. And it, it did go to auction. And But I will say I didn't um, go with the highest bidder. Um, I went with the with Knopf, which I thought was the most um, the best fit for my book for a number of reasons. One, my editor there is absolutely amazing. Um, and on the day that the auction occurred, so it was more like I got an email. I didn't get the call. I got an email um, when it happened. But she sent me a picture outside of the offices in Knopf, outside of her office, was a picture of all the Nobel Prize winners that that publishing house has published. And one of them um, was Boris Pasternak with an asterisk next to his name, um, denoting that he had to turn down the Nobel Prize. And she said, this is why she, you should come with me. And she said, I was like, oh my gosh, it's it's a done deal, um, even before I knew any of the bids. But it, it was um, important for me to go with um, the person that I thought was best. But it, it's still, um, yeah, I didn't know, really know what to do. It, it, it um, changed my life tremendously and allows me to write full-time right now and have this little shed. And <laughs> and the movie deal has been picked up, so are we close to seeing this on the big screen as so, well? Well, I, I can't say too much about it, but I think it is going to be... Um, it's being worked for television, which is quite interesting. All right. All right, and okay. I think for me, seeing so many of the adaptations that are coming out on, on you know, Hulu or Amazon or Netflix have been just extraordinary. I just finished... Uh, normal people uh, last week and just it does the book so much justice to have it on television because you have instead of an hour and a half you have eight hours to develop this all of the characters and everything that goes on so for me um, I think if you would have asked me five years ago I would say film all the way but now I think television is the best medium for these adaptations and just extraordinary um, of what has been done in recent years with them. So I think that's where it's headed. But um, yeah, it's. Hey, I, can you tell us who's got it? Is it which streamer has got it? And so the, that's still being worked out. But um, Ink Factory um, is the one of the production companies um, based in London, and also um, Mark Platt Productions, and they've done a number of collaborations together. So yeah, and I they have. Um, a director, I think, and screenwriter. I'm not working on this screenplay or anything, um, but I'll be a consultant for it. But it's exciting. I think I get advice from other writers and say, well, don't get excited until it's actually on the air or in the movies because it's Hollywood and, you know, that's how <laughs> Hollywood works. So I try to temper any excitement saying, we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. 
some of these projects are in the works for years. Yeah. And so years the and the years, reason that you you said yeah. you're not writing on this is that because you wanted to focus on other book work that you're doing or just didn't feel had the the skills to work to work in television was there a particular reason why why you're not adapting it yourself well one I definitely want to write an, I'm working on a new novel and I think my strengths lie in the novel um, I would be interested in exploring screenwriting more I have limited experience and I think when you're thinking about placing something you've written in the hands of someone else for me, it was important that it would go into extremely experienced hands. And I am not at that point yet. So <laughs> I said, you know, this is now um, a different piece of work that will be going into someone else's hands. And that's how I see it. But I would I'd be interested in, in trying my hand at some screenwriting someday, probably after this novel um, I'm writing is finished. <laughs> What is the new book about? Which way are you going with yeah, the new book? Yeah, so I'm fascinated with the 1930s at the present moment. I'm seeing a lot of reflections in the present day with what's going on, um, but I'm particularly interested in the Federal Writers Project, and which was a New Deal um, government program that was, was paying writers to go out into the field and collect stories, folklore stories often. And and also write these American guidebooks and writers like John Cheever and Nora Zero Hurston and all of, and Richard Wright, they all were being paid their 20 or $25 a week to do this by the government during the Great Depression. And I'm interested in kind of having a fictionalization of someone that works at the Federal Writers Project and things that, um, <laughs> I won't give too much away, but like it's based on no, sure. on someone. But that so the Great Depression is is in my mind, and also the still the power of stories. And I'm interested in folklore and the histories uh, people hold on to and ones that they let go. So and I read somewhere that this. I don't know if this is true, you tell me, but was was Secrets We Kept just a one-book deal because you didn't want the pressure of, of the book two deadline? So, again, would you go through the same process for this next book? It's not signed yet. Yeah, so um, it is. it was a one-book deal. I got advice, actually, from Elizabeth McCracken not to do the two-book deal. Um, you know, it's just I don't want to be held under a deadline. I think for a novel, it for me it's not going to do me any good. I want my time to explore my interests and go down different rabbit holes and have a lot of time to just work out what I want the novel, the next novel to be. And that's very important to me. And yet, no, I haven't shown my pages to anyone yet. So the first person will probably be my husband, who's my first reader, and then probably uh, my agent and editor. <laughs> but I hope to have something this summer, yeah. We had this conversation with David Nichols, right, because he won't show it to his partner because he can't cope with anything negative coming back. And I, I show all my work to my wife because I think she's the only one who will be really honest with me. And I, Natalie, I can't remember whether you show your husband or not. No, I don't. Uh, he's read some excerpts that I think are pretty good I'm not very I'm way too modest about uh, my own writing but um yeah the conversation we were having before was that uh he doesn't read the type of writing that I do so I think it'd be quite difficult to put it on him because it's it's not particularly a genre of, of writing that he's interested in reading himself um so yeah I would I just feel it would be awkward if I was writing sci-fi yeah it's such maybe. an interesting balance I so we have a whole <laughs> system worked out when he sends me his notes on what I write, 
it is emailed to me. We don't, uh, it's not a discussion. <laughs> and I take or leave what I, I think are, is good advice. Um, and then it's, it's not, um, so I think I can take the negative criticism in that way. And he is honest with me and he'll say, this is boring. This is going on too long. Um, he has really good advice. And so he'll always be my uh, number one reader for now, which I think I'm quite lucky. I don't think most of my writer friends, uh, share with their, with their significant others, just because, it can cause quite a stir <laughs> and I do feel emotional about it. And so I have to be, you know, have it by email and I can read it that way. It's not in person. <laughs> yeah. Very wise. Um, I just wanted to ask one more thing as well about the the novel that you're writing now um, and whether you're drawing politically on that time too. I, I guess you, you can't not if you're writing about the 1930s and you were saying about the parallels with today, where again, America's having quite a time of it, I'd say politically um, and racially and everything else, and, and whether there's going to be flavours of that in, in your next novel set in the 30s. Yes, I think I've been seeing, and I mean, in recent weeks and days, um, I haven't even been able to sleep um, watching the news of what's unfolding here in the United States. Um, and it has seemed like this has been bubbling over for quite some time. I'm not surprised at all um, to see what is happening. And when I first started thinking of these parallels, I was thinking about something interesting about why the Federal Writers Project was established was the thought was if it could tell stories from all these different parts of America of all the immigrants that have come and made their homes here and discovering what brought them here, discovering what their lives are like, that it would bring Americans closer together if we knew each other and we could relate to each other. And that was one of the primary reasons this New Deal um, for the Federal Writers Project was established. And it was to stop this rise of fascism that was just overtaking Europe at the time. We were on the brink of, of the next world war. And I see parallels to, you know, the rise of nationalism all over the world now and the the role of government trying to paint us as someone, as people who are so different from each other and building these walls either physically or um you know, metaphysically against each other. And I think that I keep seeing this, these rise of, of, of hate when at the same time, um, there are so much things to bring us together. And I think story is something that still brings us together. So I do see a lot of um, parallels of kind of this, another wave of where we're headed. I think history goes in waves and ups and ups and downs. And I think America has come to a, a breaking point, a reckoning point with its history. Mm, yeah, I absolutely. Think, yeah, and globally as well, Lara, you know, it feels like it's time time for a, a change towards unity rather than division. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I hope that that is what's happening. I still have to have hope. You know, that's that's how I keep going. And yeah, it's not, I'm not as, uh, um, it does seem like every day I'm, I'm reading just stories of, of things that are happening Um during the depression and also seeing the signs that we might be heading into a similar economic um, downturn due to the coronavirus and other factors. And what's that going to be like for writers? What's that going to be like for, for anybody to survive? And um, I'm interested in digging in there. 
Lara, listen, the secrets we kept, I read last year and loved it. I know it was a Reese Witherspoon pick as well, which must have blown your mind. And um, thanks so much for giving us so much of your time. We just have one final question we ask of all of our writers, which is, can you give us some recommendations for other books that you've loved? Yes, and this one just came out in the UK. It's by my dear friend, Maria Reva. It's called Good Citizens Need Not Fear, and it takes place in Soviet Ukraine, and it's a series of linked stories um, that's absolutely brilliant. It's funny, it's, it's dark, it's, it's just tremendous bit of writing. And she and I um, met each other at the Michener Center, and she was someone that's read some of the first pages of my novel as well. So I definitely recommend that. Something that I'm reading right now, um, again, it was one of my favorite novels, is The Secret History by Donna Tartt. I'm always inspired by Donna Tartt's writing, and The Secret History, I think, is her finest work. And if you're looking for some essays that kind of give you hope in these troubled times, I've been rereading um, essays of E.B. White, um, which um, were written between the 30s all the way up until the 70s, and just absolutely brilliant writing and observations of America and life and family and heartbreak and love that I, I read an essay a day um, just, to, just to hear his voice again. So... Those are three picks that I would suggest. Those are great picks. Um, also on uh, Donna Tartt, The Secret History is one of my favourite books as well. And it's probably the book I've read the most because I reread it about every three, four, five years. Um, I just want to go back to those characters and that story. And, and it still shocks and surprises me each time I read it. It's such a thriller. Um, yeah, it's great. Yes. Yes, I think that's, you know, having that, she she's a page turner and you have this mystery and you you want to know what's going to happen and it's literary and it's just such a brilliant almost mixing mixing of genres that just almost ahead of its time so that's definitely if you're if you're into that type of book i think one to pick up lara can't wait for book two thanks so much for making time for us in texas we've really loved talking to you it's been great and good luck with the parenting and the writing and the writing shed and everything else thank you so much take care guys One of the things that I really enjoyed hearing from Lara was how open she was about the process of getting signed and just what that was like and still her nerves and her insecurities, if you like, about what was going to happen to her book. And, you know, I mean, it's a story that you hear quite often about uh, rejection and people unsure if they're going to be able to convince other people that what they're interested in writing about should interest other people and it absolutely did in this but case. But I think it's a lesson in single-minded determination isn't mm. it I mean, especially the story she didn't say who it was but the story of the person in publishing obviously someone quite senior who said our oh, Russia stories are dead yeah. now nobody wants a Russia story. Yeah. And imagine being told that by someone who's in the trade that you're looking to be signed by. Yes. And just having the resilience to go you know what screw you I'm doing it anyway and that's what I loved about it and then the fact that it went for two million dollars I mean that's an in a huge amount of money for a book yeah you're lucky to see six figures for a book advance these days unless you're a big celebrity or a retired president aren't you really yeah yeah but seven figures yeah it was interesting actually because after we spoke to her there was um do you remember there was that uh thing on twitter which was rightly so um exposing some of the disparities between what 
black authors and white authors were getting paid in publishing. There was the hashtag publishing paid me and Lara. Oh yes, I did see that. Yeah, Lara did post that publishing paid me seven figures for, for my debut novel, The Secrets We Kept, at auction between 14 publishing yeah, well, good houses. Good for her, you know, and it's a reward for her resilience. And it's a brilliant book. I really, really enjoyed the book and I, I love talking to her. I tell you the other thing I admired, I don't know what your view of this is as someone who's working through the night on your edits at the moment, but... <laughs> She um, had the courage to only take a one-book deal. Yeah. So there's no pressure now for her to deliver book two, whereas some writers we speak to, they're on deadlines, they're trying to do a book a year, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's really hard, and I, I guess it's one of those things where until you're in that situation, you don't necessarily know what you will do or how you'll react to stuff. But, you know, even just the those big advances that obviously Lara got and that you... We all hear about in the press when, you know, it's a big splash about how much money somebody's made from an advance. It's not, from my understanding, that's not always necessarily the best thing because until you've paid back that advance through the sales of your books, then the publishing house doesn't start to make any money on it. So um, it can actually work not to your favour. So I think it's, you know, I think it's really interesting as well to hear what affects how people think creatively and how able they are to disassociate some of that with just kind of writing, still doing that single-mindedness and writing the books they want to write and hopefully just listening to their own inner voice that, yep, they think this one will resonate with other people and, you know, without being told that, oh, we've already got that one Russian book or that one book about the black Mm. experience or whatever it is, which is such Mm. a ridiculous Mm. argument. Yeah, I agree, 100%. If you want to get in touch with us, bestsellerspodcast at gmail.com. Let us know which episodes you're loving, which episodes you're enjoying. If there's a, an absolute knockout book that you've read that you think qualifies for bestsellers and, and we mm. haven't done it yet, then we'd love those suggestions as well, please. Bestsellers podcast, all one word, bestsellerspodcast at gmail.com. And also, if there are any really good cookbooks, because uh, I need a new good cookbook in my life. Um, How do you feel about cooking in this heat? Because as we record this, it's still really, really hot, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Somebody's got to eat. Uh, I'm okay with it. <laughs> I don't mind yeah. so much. Um, although having said that, um, I did do a failed attempt to. I made a, a gazpacho this week um, to have a cold soup for dinner, and I uh, was trying to spin it to the kids with a "Hey, it's uh, we've got a chilled soup," and they were like, "What?" <laughs> and um, understandably didn't eat it. But that's fine. Me and my husband really enjoyed it. I know how to make gazpacho. Do you? Well, so do I. Yeah. Take a tin of Heinz soup out of the cupboard. Oh, take the don't lid off, even. Pour it into a saucepan and then don't heat it. It's not. It's not the process. It's not how you do it. It's horrible, isn't it? What that your version is. Mine was delicious. Oh, cold soup. I mean, it's just not meant to. It's like, how would you feel if I said to you, "Oh, you know, with your cold soup, would you like a glass of hot wine?" Uh, I'd be okay with that. Yeah, yeah I would. I suppose we have mulled wine. That was a bad exactly. example. Exactly. There you go. Would you like some warmed up ice cream as a dessert? Uh, no, but then how far away is that from a custard, really? I think we're going off topic, aren't we? <laughs> when are we doing the food podcast? <laughs> I think I need to get some of this out of my system soon. <laughs> uh, we'd like to apologise for the lockdown speech of the last five minutes. <laughs> Sanity will return in the next episode. I can't guarantee that. Mm-hmm.